Hi there. Thank you for choosing to listen to this sermon. We pray that God would use this as an added resource to benefit you in conjunction with you belonging to a local church near you. This sermon was preached at Central Baptist Church Pretoria. 130 years of believers loving God, caring for one another and impacting the world. Well, we are going to turn again to Matthew chapter 5 this morning, so do you turn with me in your Bibles and it is uh, Jesus preaching the sermon on the mount. But we are only going to be considering, God willing, these next uh, weeks or so, uh, the introduction, which is known as the Beatitudes. Last week, I did give an overview of these Beatitudes. And this morning, I'm going to be focused on the first one, which is found in verse 3. But I will read the entire passage. So chapter 5, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he had sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Just so far, the reading of God's word. Lord, we bow before you this morning. We've done so repeatedly already. And this, Lord, just a visible demonstration that we are, Lord, creatures and that you are the creator, you are God. And Lord, we come as those who seek to learn from you, to be led by you, to be given wisdom. And Lord, even uh, thinking in terms of our standing with you today, our relationship, the redemption, the reality of being new creatures in Christ. And so may your spirit be the one at work through your word, uh, through that which is said, and even our engagement after the service this morning as well, we pray. Amen. As I reflect back in the course or over the course of my life, I have been Uh, blessed to be able to travel. Maybe I should use another word other than blessed. I've been privileged. It's been a great privilege to be able to travel to different places in the world. And like many tourists, and I guess I'm here this morning, I've stood outside the gates of Buckingham Palace. Some of you been there? Uh, Standing at those uh, trellises, uh, the fence surrounding Buckingham Palace, And I was thinking this morning, it is probably three times that I've been there, and each time hoping to get a glimpse of the queen. She's dead. Now there's a king. So I guess if I ever went again, I'd hope to see the king. Access, however, is restricted. Can't get in. Can't get in. Stand at that gate. It didn't matter what face I pulled or whatever uh, uh, energy I expressed, I simply couldn't get in. And I think, not I think, this is a fact. Uh, I'm amongst millions of people, throngs of people who have spent a lot of money simply to press against the outer perimeter of a fence at Buckingham Palace. For all my effort and expense, I've discovered that I have no right to enter into that place. I have no permission granted by the queen or granted by the king to enter into their presence. And so as an introduction this morning, I want us to think about that as Jesus 
in this opening section of the Sermon on the Mount reveals some important information about gaining access into the restricted presence of the King of Kings. This is not just the Queen, this is not just the King, this is not just the Chief, this is the King of Kings. So while, yes, all the Beatitudes describe aspects of a true disciple and uh, with this gift I spoke of last week of lasting happiness, the very first beatitude, boys and girls, those who came, those who are going to get a sweet just now, listen to this. The gift of lasting happiness is the treasure people are looking for. This beatitude, the very first beatitude, is the key. It is the only key to lasting happiness, it is the only key to what follows in the rest of these Beatitudes. And so I repeat it in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If we want to overcome this obstacle of restricted access, we need to use the key and all that follows in the other Beatitudes. There's an opposite truth that is somewhat sobering that we need to contemplate. We can rightly assume that there there is, at this moment in time, as we sit here this morning, there is no one in heaven who does not know, did not know anything about poverty of spirit. And there will be in the future no one in heaven who does not possess poverty of spirit. And so I want you to consider in the first place this morning understanding What is at stake? Now, I know that we're a mixed congregation with different interests in sport. Some of you are interested in soccer. Others interested in baseball. And some are interested in cricket. For those of you who are interested in cricket, and I hope I can explain to the rest of you, but there has currently been a tournament of what has been known as a T20 tournament. Different teams from different places in the country have been playing. And almost every night, I think it's been happening, afternoon and evening. And there's a particular prize I want you to think about. And the prize is this. If any one of the batsmen hits a ball into the crowd where the spectators are sitting, and one spectator, if a spectator can catch that ball, hit for a six with one hand, clean catch, he can participate in two million rand that's available. I had not followed all of it. I thought there'd been one person, but I was corrected this morning in the previous service to tell me that three people so far are sharing two million rand. That's great, isn't it? Wouldn't that be nice? Uh, Two million rand divided by three, just under 700,000 rand. Wow, that that could be a wonderful uh, gift. So far, three have caught the ball, but I have noticed that many have fumbled and dropped the ball. Some of them just not with the skill to catch, some of them with somebody next to them who pushes them out the way so that they can't catch it. And I would imagine if that was me, I would go to bed at night having nightmares of regret. If only, if only I'd taken hold of that ball. If only that twit 
wasn't sitting next to me and pushed me out of the way, I would have access to this money. Now, my point is this. It would be nice to get a slice of two million rand. I think so. But actually, it doesn't really matter as life for the fumblers happened before they arrived at Supersport Park and it will continue after they leave Supersport Park. Nice to have, not essential. But as we get back to our passage this morning in this particular beatitude, having the key, having that one right key to gain access into the kingdom of heaven is huge. It's essential. It's massive. Since the kingdom of heaven is the exclusive possession of men and women who are poor in spirit. Now we need to think a little bit about uh, the kingdom of heaven. It is helpful to see that this term kingdom of heaven and the other term that we often see in the gospels, kingdom of God, these are generally used interchangeably, meaning the same thing. Let me give an example. Matthew chapter 19, verse 23, Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, it's the same thing. And so what then is this kingdom? Well, in a general sense, we need to understand that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is that sphere, that realm in which Jesus rules. He reigns. And, 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 and as we look at the New Testament, we see that the different aspects that is revealed to us regarding the sphere and this kingdom that he reigns. Let me again just give you some examples. He spoke of the kingdom having come upon his disciples. So at some time past in that first century when Jesus was ministering, he shares with his disciples that the kingdom has come upon them. So Matthew chapter 12, verse 28, if it is, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, doing the supernatural, doing the miraculous... Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, Jesus the king, having authority in that sphere, ruling over demons, ruling over illnesses. We see that again and again in his ministry. And so as Jesus walked among men, there's a clear display of his authority. There's a clear display of his power. And so he could say to the disciples, the kingdom of God has come upon you. But another aspect, the Apostle Paul revealed that when Jesus sets up reign and rule in the heart of a believer, there the kingdom has come. Wow. So that means among us here today, in your life, if you're a believer, you know something of the kingdom of God that has come. There is something about the reign and rule of Jesus in your life. Let me read the verse that that I quote from Paul. Colossians 1 verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, kingdom of darkness, and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness 
of sins. In your life, if you're a believer here this morning, the kingdom of God is a present reality. It's about his rule. It's about his reign. It's about your submission. The believer has citizenship in heaven, is a subject of the kingdom of God, is a son and daughter of the King Most High, our Father in heaven. But there's a third element. It is a future aspect to the kingdom of God. And we have this at least described by John in Revelation 11 verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Wow, what a day of rejoicing that will be when all things become new, when there's a new heaven and a new earth and the old has passed away, no more sin. Jesus reigns and every knee will bow and every tongue confess. The kingdom will have come. And so having said these things about the kingdom, to gain access into the kingdom should matter to you. It should matter. It's important. It's crucial. It's vital. It's a matter that has an impact on what some have called the now and the not yet. It is the now because as believers we live in the present. We live in this world. We conduct ourselves day by day. But we do so as those who are under the lordship of Jesus. He is our king. We have surrendered to him as our redeemer king. And so that's important as I go about my life. I must be in submission to him. I must learn from him. I must obey him. I must walk with him. And, and so the now, the now, the reality of the kingdom now, knowing his favor, knowing the blessing of his presence now. But the not yet is also important. As I said to the kids this morning, our lives have a terminus Point. We have limited days in this particular body that we live. And what will happen when we go, as it were, when the tent of the body collapses? Do we have a building from God? Do we move into the presence of God? Will we be in the presence of the one who reigns in heaven forever and ever? So the significance, an absolutely important reality, this key Gaining access, gaining access, the one key that opens the door to the kingdom. Which leads me to my second point. It's an implication. <laughs> Be sure you have the right key. Delamo, man, he's the brightest young brother we've got in this church here. And in all of his ability, couldn't find the right key. Folk, there's only one key. There's no master key. Now, I don't know if they still use master keys today, but when I was a little guy, a uh, master key used to open up all the doors. If you had a certain type of lock and you had the master key, you could open all the doors. This is not a master key. It's a single key, one key. Blessed are the poor in spirit, which makes us think about my next point, the poor in spirit. What, is it, what exactly does it mean to be poor in spirit? And I want to begin by eliminating what it is not. 
There can be, and there is in fact much misunderstanding in Christian circles regarding this phrase, poverty of spirit. And so, it's not physical poverty. It's not physical poverty. The materially poor man or woman is not automatically in or has access into the kingdom of God. It is true that the rich are warned not to let their wealth give them a false sense of security. So there's a a particular challenge that rich people face. And we read of this, 1 Timothy chapter 6 is for the rich in this present age. Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on uncertainty, uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything we enjoy. So the point we need to understand that at no point do riches immediately or automatically disqualify somebody from the kingdom. And at no point do, uh, does poverty automatically give people or qualify them for the kingdom of God. Number two, poverty of spirit is not about lip service. Perhaps this is the most challenging of these, uh, what it's not. You see, the Bible is clear that pride is a vice, and I think every believer knows that. Pride is a vice, and humility is a virtue. And so if we go to a passage like Acts chapter 5, where we have Ananias and Sapphira, who are part of the religious community, what do they do? Well, they yield to the temptation to take what a humble heart would say, and they mouth it from a heart that is proud. That's what they do. And they do so to their own detriment. They lied to the Holy Spirit. It's not about paying lip service. It's also not about a certain temperament. Some people are by nature shy introverts, leaving them as quiet and retiring and maybe even lacking social confidence. I'm fall into that category, I believe. Uh, Some people are extroverts, bursting with zeal and enthusiasm and confidence in in social contexts, lots of energy and passion and lacking no confidence. It's genetic. It's the way you were made. Uh, Taking after your mother or your father or your uncle, uh, Uh, Sometimes it it, it certainly is influenced by the way you were raised, perhaps your circumstances, your environment. But but essentially, your temperament is not what it means to be poor in spirit. Now, let's look at the two words, and I want to look at them separately. Poor. What is it that makes a person poor? Well, real poverty, speaking in a general sense, is when one lacks a normal sufficiency. Don't have food, you don't have clothing, you don't have shelter. Not having the means to access the basic necessities of life. Leaving that person in a place where he or she has nothing in himself or herself that they can boast in or that they can glory in. Now Jesus in this passage uses the Greek word betokas. I'm using it deliberately because I want to use another word in a few minutes. What does he mean? Why does he choose that particular word? That word means poor like a beggar. 
desperately ashamed of condition, of that condition, never wanting his identity. I don't even want people to know my name. Helplessly poor. There's another word for poor that's used in the Greek language in the New Testament. It's the word uh, penasei. Penasei is so poor that you have to work just to maintain your living. There's a different level. There's a different standard here. Many people in South Africa are penasei poor. They earn a meager amount of money. They live, as it were, from hand to mouth. They survive with little. But there are children in Ethiopia, just as an example, who are potokas poor. Left to themselves, they will die. They're totally dependent on someone else. The poverty that Jesus speaks about here is the person that is if the person wants their need to be met, that person needs to look outside of himself or herself. And so to be poor in this first ad- uh, beatitude is to be convinced. And folk, I'm urging you this morning, this is, this is addressing us, addressing me, convinced that the source of what I need is completely outside of me. Adding to that just briefly, in spirit simply means this is to do with the inner person. It's not external uh, appendages. It's asking God, who am I in my inner being? Who am I in the inner resource recesses of my heart and consciousness? Do I understand my sinful nature and the seriousness of who I am as I stand before God? So you put those two together. It is to mean that apart from God's grace, we are spiritually impoverished. Like a beggar, I have nothing, nothing about which to glory in. I have nothing to offer. I have to look outside of myself for help. So Jesus describes this key as having a consciousness in your heart that in the presence of God, and folks, think of yourself as Isaiah, as he enters into the temple and the seraphim are singing, holy, holy, holy. His response in the presence of God, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And so in the presence of God, I understand I am nothing. I have nothing. I can do nothing. I stand in need of all things. Application in South Africa. There is no such thing as a sense of entitlement when we stand before God. There's no bill of rights that we can wave in the face of God. Psalm 34 verse 18, the Lord is near to the broken hearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. Psalm 51, verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The only key to lasting happiness, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If we understand this beatitude, it's not hard to see why the gospel is a gospel of grace. 
It is God in Christ giving a gift to undeserving, poor, wretched beggars. Riches in Christ making him or her an heir. Sight to see and understand spiritual truth and light. A gift of a cloak of righteousness. The gift of every, every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, what does that mean? It means that, that Jesus is teaching only God can do this. Not man, not religion, not philosophy, not even the church. The one and only key that you and I need is an awareness before God that as a beggar, he must supply my desperate spiritual need. And I'll get to the other Beatitudes. Can you understand therefore why Paul says in his ministry, the great apostle Paul, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you, this is Paul saying this, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. I, I think we must stretch our minds a little bit in terms of what does that say about much of celebrity Christianity today? The age of performance in the church where the stage is filled with actors parading, beaming with self-confidence. I, I was watching a, a video clip one of the churches, I mentioned it last week, that collapsed, and a mega church. And in the report, it said that the, the lead motivational speaker was able to turn tears on simply by turning his head in a certain direction, stirring the emotions of the people, manipulating the environment of the big crowd. Self-confident men and women delivering false gospel, the false gospel of entertaining self-indulgent men and women into deception regarding their spiritual well-being. It helps me understand better. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, away from me, you evildoers. Doesn't that make your heart bleed? It ought to make you make a, a heart so sad. There is only one suitable key. It doesn't matter how smart you are, how creative you are. The spiritual locksmiths of our day, they, they, they stand up and parade as they have all the answers to everything. Jesus has the only answer. And it's found in this particular passage and many other places. And I'm going to show you that in just a minute. The message of the poverty of spirit is not obs an obscure teaching. It's not an isolated teaching that we can say it doesn't matter. Which leads me to my third and final point, which will be briefer. I want to show you the key to lasting happiness at work. Uh, theory, now let's look at the practice. And I want the word of God to demonstrate just one example of this key at work in the life of a person who used the key and of another person who thought he knew better. Luke 18, verse 9. He, that is Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, treated others with contempt. This is what he told them, a parable. 
Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, that's a religious man, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. Consider that attitude. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. End of the parable. How does Jesus conclude? I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Folks, that's the way of Christianity. The Pharisee, he thought more highly of himself than he ought. That was the problem. God is in the picture. Oh yes, God is in the picture. He's religious. He's a Pharisee. He's studied. He's given his life to religion. But God is on the edge. He himself is in the center. He's preoccupied with himself. In essence, the Pharisee is saying to God, how fortunate God you are to have me in your service. What's the problem? His hands are full. His hands are full of himself. His hands are full of religion, external activism, knowledge of the law par excellence. What about the tax collector? Stood at a distance knowing the temple to be the house of God. A holy God. An awesome God, a transcendent God, an all-powerful God, a God of wrath. But he also knew him to be a God of mercy, a God of compassion, and a God of love. God that holds people accountable. The tax collector, we're told, would not lift his eyes to heaven. He's conscious. He doesn't go tripping up to the stage and flippantly and frivolously amble into the presence of God. He beats his breast. You get the analogy. You get the body language. Like Isaiah standing. uh, Empty hands. His need to be satisfied by God. Jesus of course concludes the parable and makes a judgment. I'll repeat the verse. I tell you this man went down to the house. His house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I want to end with the last question before I just conclude. Why poverty of spirit? Why why is that so important? Why is Jesus highlighting this as the first beatitude? If you come to my house, and you're welcome to come to my house anytime, don't bother getting out your car and ringing the bell. The bell doesn't work. All right, so you come to my house, Procedure is blow the hooter or phone me and you come inside. Why doesn't my bell work? Well, it used to work and we had lots of beggars coming by and ringing the bell. Some of you will remember my wife. She's far more compassionate than I am. I arrived home one day and she had a beggar on the couch. Him waiting for the sandwich and tea. 
But we did discover, I did discover, she discovered this as well. Sometimes beggars would come asking for help. And she would go inside and make a sandwich, give the sandwich to them. And then just a little later, we'd walk outside or go outside. The beggar would be gone and the sandwich would have been thrown on the floor. Have you heard that? Because didn't really want a sandwich. Wanted money. You see, why poverty of spirit? A starving man does not bicker with the one who can give him bread. We come to Jesus on his terms. Jesus explicitly said, if you want to be my disciple, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. You see, folk, where there's poverty of spirit, there's no self-justification. There's no argument. There's willing abandonment to God, a commitment and allegiance to his will. I surrender all. Poverty of spirit and abandonment to Jesus is something that ought to happen at the beginning of this pathway to lasting happiness. And we'll speak about uh, the morning and uh, the confession and the repentance as we go in weeks ahead. But poverty of spirit is definitely essential to the start of that walk of life in terms of lasting happiness. That, that's, but it doesn't end there. It ought to be that which keeps us on the pathway of lasting happiness. God's favor, God's good hand. I continue. You continue to stand. You ought to stand with empty hands. Lord, grace. Grace at conversion. Grace as I walk this life. And actually grace even when I enter into heaven. The thief comes only to steal and kill, destroy that Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Well, let me conclude. In my lifetime, I don't think I will ever gain access to Buckingham Palace, unless some of you have connections. I don't think I'll ever gain access to Nkandla. I'd love to go in there and see what goes on. Or, did you know, of course you know, the presidential compound is just around the corner from our church. I don't think. It would be nice but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. What does matter is to be in the presence of Jesus. That's what I want. I'm sure that's what you want. I'd rather see Jesus, the favor of God, the lasting happiness that carries us through the most difficult things than the now and in the not yet. But dear friends, a final word this morning, and it's a word to me. We come with empty hands, empty hands. We keep our hands empty, no entitlement. And so the question, are your hands empty like the tax collector or have you gathered in your hands other things like the Pharisee? Lord, we thank you for your spirit. Thank you for the psalmist that leads us that we ought to search and ask you to search our hearts and lead us down pathways where we continually see, even as Isaiah did, as this tax collector saw, the greatness and majesty and holiness of who you are and who we are. And yet at the same time, Lord, knowing your compassion and your mercy and your love, 
Help us come with empty hands, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon. Find out more about Central Baptist Church at www.central.org.za.